Welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And Brad, today we have two guests with us uh, to, to talk a little bit about soybean varieties and soybean variety selection. Extension soybean agronomist Seth Nave and plant pathologist uh, Dean Melvick. Uh, and Dean's focus is corn and soybean pathology. And so uh, we're going to rely on them to have a little discussion about uh, soybean varieties and variety selection and things that... Uh, we consider when we're selecting varieties. So welcome, Seth. Welcome. Welcome, Dean. Hello, everyone. All right. So uh, I th- figured we'd get started here probably talking uh, a little bit with Seth. Um, you know, recently, Seth, I saw you had compiled some some data from some different trials. You were kind of, uh, looked like you were comparing some uh herbicide trait packages I'll, I'll call it uh and the yield potential so i don't know if you want to take a couple minutes and tell us what exactly you did with that analysis okay yeah thanks ryan i think the, the question really revolves around how farmers make choices for varieties right and so um you know they divide varieties up into various groups and then choose within those and so one of the most important things that they're doing is is really determining whether um, they want to use a specific uh, herbicide trait uh, on their farm. So are they going to be in a Liberty system or in a pure Roundup system or Extend or Extend Flex or what, what do they want to have for a, an herbicide system? And then they can make choices within that in terms of varieties that they choose based on you know other, other factors. And so the, the base question then becomes, is there yield differences among those uh, trait packages? Because those really are part of lineages of, you know, companies and individual companies produce varieties with their kind of um, their trait packages that, that follow along uh, from their system. And so one of the core questions is how do these different uh, varieties uh, yield against one another and then also how does that change over time so when new traits come online uh, are those actually those newest varieties are they actually intergressed in the highest yielding varieties and the the most elite genetics and so that those newest varieties are going to yield the most or do they carry some sort of yield lag and drag with them because they don't have the right kind of um, associated um, traits to deal with uh, diseases and other problems. And so I did a couple different uh, analyses. One was with the Minnesota variety trials. We could do a, we could go back five or 10 years in, in the Minnesota variety trials test and we could actually look at how varieties yielded one versus another over time. And so we could look at those trait packages just in general. So how did, how did Liberty Links look when they first came on relative to roundups? How did Extend Beans look versus Roundups or Liberties when they came on, um, GT27s, um, etc. So uh, I was able to kind of do a pretty nice time sequence and, and look at how those how those different packages looked. And, and I guess um, I would say that for the most part, all these trade packages were very, very competitive with, with each other. There wasn't any of them that really stood out in terms of their yield potentials. And I would also say that there wasn't any distinct pattern in that the first year of release was either very good or very bad for any of those varieties. Um, I think there's definitely a little bit of both going on and there's a lot of tempering going on. So the newest varieties probably do come in some more elite germplasm, but they probably also carry some um, background uh, genetics um, that's basically dragging their yield down a little bit because they're not 
they don't have the right iron chlorosis tolerance or they may may not be set up for white mold or some other some other disease that we've got in our area so they carry some genetic baggage along with them that that ends up getting pulled out over time so uh, we basically didn't see much of anything uh, either way. Uh, and then I also was able to look at the NAS data set. I was able to get access to the full NAS data set for Minnesota. So this, I'm sorry, the first first data set, excuse me, I was thinking of another trial. So the, the, the farmer's um, information uh, uh, trial uh, from the private companies. And uh, we basically saw the same thing there, a lot more varieties in a lot more locations, um, but we saw basically the same sort of trend, is that there wasn't any of these individual um, um, herbicide trade packages that really was heads, uh, head, uh, head and toes or head and feet or whatever the, the, um, the saying is above the others. So, um, you know, I do remember... Uh, a long while back, or not actually that long, but uh, you remember some comparisons? I think you did. Uh, if we think back to the Roundup versus Roundup Ready 2, do you remember any of that analysis you did back in uh, when those were new varieties? Well, I think I think uh, you know, back to my days as a county agent, that was a that was a big concern that basically we were taking a standard soybean variety and then. Uh, breeding the Roundup, uh, the glyphosate tolerance gene into it, and there was always this question about what genetics got knocked out of the, you know, got, got knocked out for the sake of the herbicide tolerance, and did that cause us to lose yield? Is that still kind of where we're at with that, Seth, or are we, have we kind of moved on to where that uh, these traits are a little more ubiquitous, and, and really now it's more of a question of just everything standing on its own, how is it performing? Yeah, there's probably at least three things in there. Um, one is that gene insertion site, and and the the original Roundup one did go into a place that that probably conferred a little bit of true yield drag to it. Um, in the in subsequent studies, when we looked at really good um, conventionals versus the best um, Roundup ready ones, there was probably a little bit of yield drag that was a bushel or two there. Roundup 2s came out and they were in, in, in a, inserted into a much better location within the genome and there didn't see, seem to be any true lag from, from that. So I think that overcame that piece. The other part of that comment, Brad, is really around the base genetics that those in first lines are, are introgressed into. So the, the first um, lines that, that, were, um, that got that new gene Roundup, those first Roundups, that was a Group Three variety, and it carried a lot of um, a lot of um, genetic baggage that just did not work in the north. And so, um, Monsanto worked really hard to back cross a lot of northern germplasm back into it. Um, but one thing that really suffered from the very beginning with that is that particular line had no tolerance to iron deficiency chlorosis and for as an example and so as a big multigenic genic trait um, we basically had to by brute force continue to back cross and back cross and back they had to continually back cross better and better lines into that so that we could have that full full slate of of um, of tolerance to idc once it's in there, then Monsanto started using a base. They're all their germplasm that they were crossing with each other were all Roundup ones, and then they could make very good progress from there. And so, 
if you remember the marketing from 10 or 15 years ago, that was what the big companies were saying is they said, well, we have all Roundup in our whole system. We're just crossing with, with other Roundup lines and that's, that's how we're able to make such good progress. Well, we don't hear them say that anymore because now there's a lot of different stuff going into these things. And so it's not just about Roundup anymore. Uh, so it, it, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot happening on that line, but it does, it does just take a lot of time. Uh, but the closer to home that you can make that first line and the, the closer to us that it can be, the better off we are. But that's also why northern Minnesota and the Red River Valley always seems to get things quite late is that it just takes a while to get that suite of, of genetics uh, bred back into those varieties for that, for those, for those, um, that particular environment to, to do well in. All right, so so uh, thinking about variety selection, a huge decision for a farmer or for a consultant to be, you know, consulting with a farmer and helping them make selections. Um, what kind of pointers would you offer for that, Seth, as far as resources or, or you know, what are your best management practices, I guess, when it comes to variety selection in today's day and age with, you know, new varieties come in, new herbicide trait packages, uh, you know, turnover of varieties seem to seems to happen quite quickly. Um, what kind of suggestions do you have for folks? Well, I'd say the the um, probably the biggest highest level point is is to don't rely on single sources of information. Um, so that means go out and find as many different sources of information as you can to help make this choice. The problem is that none of those different sources of information match with each other. And it's very, very difficult to merge um, information from county plots versus university variety trials versus the first trials versus company information forever, for instance. They all, they all provide it in a different, th- those are all evaluated and, and are very different conditions, context uh, against different other varieties. Um, you know, there are some consultants that have built some little models that have been, been able to pull some of these things together and identify head-to-head com- competition among, you know, like the the county plots that are that are provided on Minnesota corn site. Um, but still, even with those, that doesn't give us enough information. We have to go out to multiple sources. And and I guess, you know, I guess the, the, the next line of high level question here is that this is um, there's no easy button. <coughs> Sorry, you're gonna have to edit that one out. <coughs> There, there really isn't an easy button with this. And so farmers are, to do a really good job, farmers are gonna to have to look in lots of different locations for that data to help support varieties that they definitely wanna include on in their farm and ones that they wanna get rid of. You know, company information is fantastic when you're evaluating within a single source of, of seed. And so a lot of, a lot of variety, a lot of farmers are actually having to source from one, one different, one company because of volume discounts and other things like that. And it's not necessarily what we recommend, but I understand that that's the way of the world. And so within a single company, those folks are pretty, they know their their um, their packages and they know those genetics pretty well. And they should be able to give you, uh, give a farmer really good information about them. But then I think it's, uh, the onus is on the farmer to go back and see and just confirm the company A is really doing a good job breeding it, that those varieties are really holding up relative to, to some of the competition so that they can 
they can make sure that they are happy with continuing that relationship with that particular company. And, and it may be, may be difficult to break um, that relationship, but I think it's definitely worth knowing uh, what that potential cost would be. And so I think it's important to look at tests that look beyond. And so that means looking at both statewide tests, like you know the first trials and Minnesota variety trials, and then some local testing too. Uh, and I'm not even against farmers doing testing on their own farm, but they just need to understand that their farm isn't going to be predictive of what they see next year. Uh, it's just one source of one one data point that they would have because um, we just don't get the same environment year over year. And so multiple other environments are going to be better predictors of what happens on a farm than than the performance of a variety on that farm on the previous year. So Seth, one of the one of the concepts that was talked about a lot maybe a decade or so ago was that the uh, yield uh, trend line for soybeans had sort of stalled out that we just seemed to be always in that 50 bushel, 55 bushel, maybe 60 cap and it just just wasn't getting higher. Suddenly in the last few years now we're we're hearing reports, you know, 70 bushels, 80 bushels. It's not certainly not all over the place, but they're real. Uh, is is this uh, what, what's what's been the breakthrough that we finally started to to see some movement on that? I don't have a really good answer for you, Brad. I think um, you know, obviously, breeding's been an important part of it. Our environments have changed a little bit, but I think the breeding has definitely been the driver. Um, I would actually say um, the more important part than the high end is actually bringing up the lows too. Um, We've got a lot more yield stability in these varieties. They seem to yield even in environments that we don't expect to have good yields. They, soybeans have been surprising us on the low side more than the high side. And I think if you look at global yield trends, that's North America and South America, we're, we're continually above trend line yields, meaning that that curve is kind of, that line is kind of curving upwards. And so um, we're definitely accelerating this this yield gain over the past you know five to five to seven years probably. Um, so um, you know I think the new genetic technologies are probably helping because they're able we're able the companies are able to make those advancements quicker. They're able to effectively make more progress in a in an individual year because they can look at the genomics and identify markers for important traits that they can push ahead in that system. All the companies have different terminologies for it, but it, it just helps them turn over those and, and make progress quicker. So it accelerates it accelerates their progress, their yield gain, and so then that helps, helps you know, instead of a third of a bushel a year, then we're up more to a half a bushel and, and two-thirds of a bushel. So it, it just helps push us upwards. So one of the things... Uh we know is that uh, when people have experience with a variety or with anything, really a management strategy, they get comfortable with it and kind of, uh, you know, grow to expect certain results and things. And after one of our applicator training uh, workshops this winter, I was chatting with a farmer and uh, he was, he was talking about, uh, well, he's expressing some disappointment, I guess, that a variety he had been using for a couple of years now uh, was no longer going to be available. And and kind of, I don't know if we want to spend a couple minutes just chatting about that as far as, uh, you know, variety turnover and, uh, you know, how fast does that happen? Does it vary across the state when we when we look at different uh, areas or 
what do you know about that, Seth? Well, these varieties do turn over very fast, and it, typically it's about once every three years um, those varieties are going to turn over. So, um, you know, farmers are not going to be raising <laughs> raising those same varieties very long. Um, so a couple pieces, I think, of information there is I think, you know, from a, from a diversification standpoint, it's probably good for farmers as they select multiple varieties um, in terms of risk management that they probably should identify uh, one or two new lines, one or two that they've, they did well on their farm the previous years, and maybe another variety that, that is a really good standard variety that, that's, that's been done well for them in the last three years, for instance. And that gives them, that diversifies the, a, a number of different directions in terms of genetics. It allows, it allows a diversification um, in, in when those varieties came on and, and probably gives them a little bit of upside value and in, in potential in some of the new ones and then reduces their risk uh, on the others. Um, but it is, uh, it is certainly a challenge when we don't have the long-term yield results. And I, the other, I think when we get to Dean, I think it's going to be important to think about that particular question relative to the disease and other risk management for, you know, I, I do a lot of work with iron chlorosis, for instance, and that's an area where we see farmers holding on when they find a really good variety for IDC, they hold it. Um, you know, Monsanto has had a variety 1733 that's been around for five, six, seven years. I don't know how long it's been around. They've gone through two or three naming systems since then, and so that variety is still hanging on. And um, farmers are still buying it because they know that that, is, that variety will, will do well in the, their environments that they've had. And so uh, Monsanto's had a hard time completely flushing that one out, even though it's been virtually replaced three or four times uh, since. So I think those are those are examples where farmers, uh, where they have trouble spots or whether they where they know a variety has done very well for them in an, in a particular instance, then that's a time maybe to go back to that particular variety. All right. So not to not to forget about Dean here. Uh, Dean, uh you know, Seth just mentioned this, and I think it's an important component, particularly when we talk about soybeans are diseases. And uh, the fact that there are several diseases in Minnesota that we're, we're pretty heavily reliant upon host plant resistance and having varieties that have some kind of at least field tolerance to diseases. And I think it'd, it'd be a good time now to maybe switch gears and, and talk a little bit about some of those diseases that occur in Minnesota and and where variety and variety selection ends up being critically important. Yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, you know, one of the challenges with diseases, of course, is, as we all know, is they're inconsistent, you know, from year to year in most fields. Um, and so the risk is not consistent from year to year, and it's largely driven by weather. But I think we also know if we have a lot of experience with individual fields that certain fields have a higher risk for certain problems. Uh, for example, white mold. You know, Seth brought that up. In, in many areas, that's a, a, a real significant issue, and but not every year. And uh, you know, one of the keys to managing that is planting a variety that has at least a, a a good level of resistance. Now, there's there are no varieties yet developed that have absolute complete resistance. It's been a really hard challenge for breeding companies to get to that level, but a a variety with a, a good level of resistance 
generally performs much better than a variety that's very susceptible. And so that's a key thing. Now, if we have fields where we know there's a high risk of white mold, again, this is one disease example to talk about, it's, it's important to pick a good variety. It's not going to be an ultimate solution, but it will make a difference. Um, other diseases, you know, brown stem rot, an another good example to think about, it's widespread. And the resistance in most varieties of soybean is adequate to keep that disease in check most of the time, but not all the time. And the other point that was raised earlier is, you know, some new varieties don't carry along the resistance traits that we really would like to have um, to, to keep diseases under control. And for example, a number of years ago, might have been 10 or so, a you know, major seed company came out with a, a good soybean variety that looked quite good. Um, and I think they thought they could get by without brown stem rot resistance, but after a year or two, they found out they couldn't, that variety you know, it's taken off the market pretty quickly because that level of resistance is important, even if it's a disease we don't recognize as a real threat. It, it's, it's out there and widespread. It, and going back to white mold and some of the newer herbicide resistance traits, there's, there's been observation in Minnesota and other states as well that some of the new herbicide resistance traits come along in varieties that don't have a lot of resistance to white mold. And some of those have suffered significant problems because of it. So the general point is the same. If we know a field is at risk of a particular problem, it's important to have a variety that has a decent level of resistance. Uh, so those are a few points. Um, some other diseases to keep in mind, you know, sudden death syndrome, another fungal disease, you know, spreading across the state. Again, like most of these problems, it's not an every year problem. But th this is an important one that can really take a lot of yields out. And good resistance goes a long way in dramatically reducing yield loss. Um, that would be the number one way to manage that disease if we have it. And a few more would be uh, Phytophthora root and stem rot. You know, most varieties have resistance to that. Um, pod and stem blight we're noticing. Some varieties are rated. And now frog eye leaf spot, a leaf disease of soybean, now we're noticing more and more varieties with a rating for that. And so these are all things to look for depending on what we know about for a particular field. Now every field is not going to have these problems, so they may not be important everywhere. So again, the field history is, is important. Dean, one thing I always think about, and you brought up brown stem rot, and kind of a curiosity is like some of these things are would be next to impossible to screen for, you know, sort of a breeding program. I mean, you could clearly you could put in a nursery that was infested with the disease, but I've I've wondered like, particularly with that brown stem rot, is it something that we discover the varieties you know tolerance or resistance to that particular uh, disease? Uh, is it something that, that gets figured out once it's out on a number of acres? Is that kind of the, the thing? It, it, you know, does it have to have kind of a widespread distribution before you kind of determine how resistant it is? Well, well that's, that's true. Again, getting back to the critical importance of weather and driving disease, that's a challenge always. You know, we can only rate these diseases right, once a year in a field setting where the data is truly most valuable. And oftentimes the weather is not conducive in one or two years um, to really get good solid resistance data. And if we rotate varieties every two or three or four years for some of them, 
you know, there's limited time to get solid data you know, if, if that pump pipeline of varieties keeps changing. So that's always a challenge. Now, some of the diseases actually can be rated in greenhouses. And I know I've sent isolates of pathogens to many of the companies to use in their greenhouse um, winter screening programs. So there's a lot of work done that way for some of these diseases. And uh, Seth also mentioned genetic markers. You know, I, I suspect they're being used more and more as well to help understand which of the lines they're working with have that trait that they want. And so that's an important part of it too. Um, but getting good data that really represents how that variety performs in a disease situation is challenging. And related to that is what do those numbers mean? You know, most of those ratings are on a one to nine scale. And you know, different companies treat that a little differently, but you know, typically if it's at the susceptible end of the scale, you can pretty reliably say it's susceptible. And if it's a far end of the resistance scale, you can pretty reliably say it's probably has a good level of resistance. But some of the varieties in the middle I've seen, you're not sure what to expect. Some of them actually have pretty good resistance and some of them are more susceptible than you think if they had a score of five. And so that's another challenge. Another is that every company rates these differently. There's no standard. Unlike with the alfalfa world, all those screening for resistance is done by a standardized set of protocols. In soybean, that's not the case. And every, every variety, every company, every approach is, is different. So those scales don't necessarily mean exactly the same thing. So Dean, kind of an interest, interesting story here. Uh, uh, we used to do some uh, variety screening on uh, ground that was infested with SEN or soybean cyst nematode. And we don't want to spend a ton of time talking about SEN today, uh, but uh, it was interesting because we put these varieties on both in a kind of a standard variety trial locally on non-infested and then on these more heavily infested uh, plots that we had. And there was a newer variety, and this was a long time back now, but uh, there was a newer variety, um, one of the first Peking soybean options. We had Peking source of resistance for SCN, and it actually looked pretty good, both in the infested and non-infested plots. The yields were were really kind of filtering to the top of the, the trial, and looked interesting and I know a couple of farmers that use those results to pick that variety then to to manage SCN and and just to use as a variety on their farm and they figured out that uh, that particular variety did not have good brown stem rot resistance and it, it just really fell flat due to that particular disease you know and it well just dumb luck looked really good at four different sites and then the next year two different farms came up short, you know, and there was no way to really predict that would happen. So it's just kind of an interesting story related to disease and some of this variability from year to year that we can see in different sites and whatnot. And Dean, I'm kind of curious, uh, Seth talked, <clears throat> excuse me, Seth talked a lot about uh, uh, genetic modification and herbicide resistance. I mean, do we have a full understanding of the mechanisms of disease resistance? I guess typically I think of disease resistance as following through traditional plant breeding and not a lot of genetic modification. <clears throat> Does that hold some promise uh, as far as where we may be headed for disease resistance in the future? That's a, that's a very good question, Brad. This is a really interesting 
topic. So disease resistance and the tr genetic traits that control it in soybean is varied across the trait. So for example, brown stem rot resistance seems to be controlled in many cases by a single gene or two. And it related back to what Ryan said, the, the PI88 source of resistance to SEN naturally carries along some brown stem rot resistance with it. But the PKing resistance does not carry the BSR resistance. So that's been discovered. And so there's, there's clearly a need to do more breeding for brown stem resistance in PKing varieties. Um, but back to the question, you know, so some of the traits are fairly simple and others are incredibly complex, like white mold and SDS. It's controlled by many, many genes. Some would say as many as 30 or, or more different genes or genetic segments or QTLs as they're referred to in the breeding communities. Um, so it's really difficult. And so some of these traits definitely have potential for genetic engineering and, and engineering a particular trait into a soybean that makes it resistant to a disease. Others do not based on what we know right now. Um, so it's been a really difficult challenge. I suspect there's considerable work being done by seed companies to develop some of the genetic resistance to some of these diseases. Um, but at, at this point in time, I'm not aware of any varieties that are on the market or uh, soon to be on the market with genetic resistance to a disease. Let me throw in one kind of curious thing that that's involved with the with the business side of this uh, breeding effort is that there's a really curious side to what Dean was just talking about in that just by historical way of baggage or how the how our systems have have developed um, traditional um, traditional traits that come with these varieties um, those don't come at an extra cost. The seed companies early on decided that they were going to use uh, genetic tra or GM type traits as the way to market their their corn and soybean crops. So those novel traits were the ones that they charge more for. And so that's where you know the the companies have real interest in providing a GM trait for these diseases because they know that that can carry an extra upcharge with it that's more difficult. Um, than just saying that this variety is more resistant to another variety. And that's why Peking varieties, um, you know, never really caught on uh, with the companies because they knew that they couldn't charge more and they came with some drag in their yield. And so it took a lot longer for those to really move forward. Same thing with aphid resistance and on the, on the insect side is that we have aphid resistance that works really well. But the companies really couldn't charge for it um, in the same way that they would with a genetic trade, and so there wasn't, there isn't, there isn't the in interest in moving those forward. And so there's this, con there's a conflicting thing going on: is that the companies really want a GM trait, but those are really difficult to find. And if if we were doing it, if we were building the system from scratch, I think we would probably be putting more effort and rewarding companies more for finding um, native resistance to these kind of traits rather than genetic modifications. It seems like identifying some of those what you call native resistances would be much more challenging, particularly with a pest like SEN or um, 
you know, I'm trying to think about, oh, the soybean aphid example is a perfect one with, you know, trying to trying to find that and then manipulate it into a, a plant would be much more challenging. And you kind of wonder where, uh, I don't want to leave that line of thinking here, where that soybean aphid resistance is going. Do you think, do you think there's enough work being done with that commercially that we're going to see that soon, Seth? Or is it do we have enough uh, still viable chemical control options that we don't really need that yet? You know, what's what's the the thinking? I guess. Well, you, I think your last statement is exactly perfect. It's, it's the fact that we have not only chemical options, but we have very very cheap chemical options for for treating aphids in the field. So. The cost is very, very low um, relative to the effectiveness of those, um, and so there just um, there just isn't that level of interest in in developing or or marketing um, aphid resistance, especially since the aphid resistance that we have isn't a hundred percent resistance. It 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 offers um, it offers a delay when farmers would probably have to spray. Could be very very important for organic and and some other you know low input systems and i think that's where it should be focused but again the market isn't really driven by those market sectors and so again it's a little bit of a broken it's what i consider kind of a broken market is that we're not we're not able to always get get the right um, investment into areas that could make a lot of uh, additional benefit but it but it is it is truly the market that's pushing it that way so i guess it's whether you're whether you're a lefty or a righty whether you think it's the right way or not but um it's it's it is definitely um, a question that that probably impedes us in some way in, in pushing things forward so dean back to you um a disease we've managed for a long time, Phytophthora. Um, I was kind of curious to pick your brain a little bit more about Phytophthora and and resistant options, and you know just where we're at in terms of Minnesota and, and managing that particular disease. Um, you know we've got different races of that disease. Uh, we more frequently probably talk about SCN and shifts in the virulence within that population uh, because of a you know we've we're probably more reliant on a single source of resistance with that particular pest. But uh, when it comes to Phytophthora, what's new? Yeah. So if, if you look at, you know, the seed label, the, the text sheet for most varieties, there, there's a clear label for what it has for Phytophthora resistance, since that is a, a widespread important disease too. Um, so there's there's two different types of resistance there, and this this is not new, but there's the single gene resistance, so called the R, RPS, um, say one C, one K, one A. Those have been widely used genes for Phytophthora. Um, then there's also the so called field tolerance rating that most varieties come along with, and that's not controlled by a single gene, but that's controlled by multiple genes and in a high resistance rating or the field tolerance rating, I should say, you know, provides a level of, I should say, management of Phytophthora regardless of the race or pathotype that's in a field. And again, a bit, a comment about that. So these pathotypes are, are races that are Phytophthora, you know, they're known to be very diverse even across Minnesota. And some of them just essentially render single resistance genes like RPS1K essentially useless. Um, they completely overcome that resistance. 
meaning other sources of resistance, such as RPS3, for example, might be needed. Um, so that's the challenge with that, and, and understanding and knowing which uh, races or pathotypes, that's kind of a, those are interchangeable terms in a sense, um, and it's in a field, is, is hard, because there's no real systematic service that does that, that I'm aware of. So, but the field tolerance provides a high, at least a, a good level, depending on that rating, of management potential against all the phytophthora that might be out there. So that's, that's, that's not really new, but there are new genes coming out. There are more varieties available with these non, uh, with the genes other than RPS1K and 1C, for example. So that's, that's kind of new. The other thing is there are more seed treatments available uh, now that have activity against Phytophthora. For a long time, it was primarily, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was Apron or Apron XL. Uh, that was the common metal axle and methanoxin, the, the more chemical name. Now we have a number of different options that are that are available and also provide a good control for that disease. So that's another option that's that's being used widely now. Oh good, thanks. Anything else you guys want to talk about today? All right, hearing no comments. I think we covered uh, the appropriate uh, ground here and uh, want to give a shout out or thanks to our two uh, speakers or contributors uh, today on the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. And I want to thank everyone else for uh, tuning in today. So thanks a lot. Thanks.